0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Proverbs sixteen six and twenty nine eighteen. By steadfast love and faithfulness iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord one turns away from evil. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who keeps the law. This is the word of the Lord. This morning is our last uh, Sunday in uh, exploring the Proverbs, and we've been thinking all summer about what it looks like to be children of grace, recipients of God's forgiveness, and then to reflect his love and his wisdom and his goodness in our lives. This is the call of the believer to consider our new citizenship, our heavenly citizenship, and then really engage with one another and with the city Uh, sort of in a mindful, spiritual dual citizenship. we've got to engage day to day in in real and relevant ways. But the grace of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness has had an impact and we want to be wise. And this morning we're going to focus on this phrase, prophetic vision. What in the world uh, does it mean? Why do we need it? And how do we get it? And we want to give this some thought because I believe that it's... uh, central to the theme of Proverbs, which we talked about last week, about this awe of God, this love and awe that is a real motivating and compelling force that really drives and shapes and forms our lives. So let's look at uh, this prophetic vision this morning. And we'll start with the first question, which is, why do we need it? And in one sense, this is so simple, it's this, like the sermon is complete within the title because it says right in the verse uh, Uh, 18. that without it, we cast off restraint. So in one sense, it seems super obvious. But then in another sense, you could spend all afternoon reading through the prophets, the prophetic literature, and exploring the ways they were trying to convey God's vision for a flourishing humanity, the ways in which the people of God had kept turning away from God, and the ways in which that led to their demise, whether it was... A demise that was civic in the way they were living with each other, oppressive in the way they were relating to uh, the poor, the outcasts, or the foreigners among them, the way that it affected their own uh, health and wellness, whether it was physically or mentally, the ways in which that their hearts were just like idle factories and they kept turning from God. You could spend all afternoon looking at the prophetic vision and the way in which the people of God were like, no thanks. They looked at the culture and they said, we'll have what they're having. And then we could take that and hold that up like to a mirror to our own lives and we can consider what does it look like in my life to cast off restraint from this thing that the bible calls prophetic vision so in one sense it's simple and in another sense it could spend all afternoon sort of meditating on it so why do we need it without it life becomes an exercise in futility because we end up building our life on things that really in the end are going to be erased by time or that really in the end are too small to satisfy us, that in the end we are hardwired for worship. To borrow from Jared Wilson, theologian and pastor, the switch in the human heart for worship was flipped on in the garden, and it's been on ever since. And so we're constantly wanting to sort of satisfy the deepest longings of the human soul, which quite frankly can't be satisfied with having a successful vocation and a nice house and shiny things and... And uh, relationships, or sexual uh, escapades, or any of the sorts of things that the cultural narrative would say would lead to a fulfilling life. In the end of that, there's something still rumbling in the human soul that says that somehow this is not enough. And so, without this prophetic vision, we cast off all sorts of restraint. Restraint being defined as what God would consider wise and good and loving restraint that I'm willing to put on my life so that I Flourish uh, as an individual and also am an agent of flourishing in the people that I'm in relationship with, whether it's family or at my vocation or my neighbors in my in my city. So this is why we need it. If You look at chapter 16 and verse 6. It says that by steadfast love, faithfulness and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. What is this iniquity? Sin is, uh, you know, the outworking manifestation of doing something that is contrary to the love and the wisdom and the ways of God. But iniquity is not the final product. Consider sin the final product. Iniquity is like the undertow in the ocean continually pulling you in a direction. All of the brokenness of humanity in every form and the endless catalog of evil that we continue to do towards one another in unloving ways is a result of iniquity in humanity. This undertow in the soul, pulling us away from the love of God, the wisdom of God, and wanting to be children of God, and bending our knee to the sovereignty of God, and, and rather choosing to be God. And that iniquity causes you know, uh, us to uh, cast off restraint and fulfill the desires and the appetites of our own hearts. And of course, this ends in what the Bible would call sin, uh, rejecting God in favor of in that moment, choosing this thing, which has a massive payoff in our eyes, and being God. And it says that that has been atoned for by steadfast love and faithfulness. And when something is atoned for, it's paid for, which is why, as the children of God, you and I stand in this scandalous place. We're standing in a borrowed holiness. And because that's true, and because God's grace is so amazing, that because of what Jesus has done, even though our day-to-day reality is that we struggle with sin, our standing before God is that we are declared righteous. This is all legal language that the Bible uses to describe the way that we are righteous before God. And so because that is true and because there's been an atonement for our iniquity, that has a formative effect, a changing effect, a saving effect, which in the Old Testament, which is the context of this scripture, it would result in this thing called the awe of God, the fear of God, which is where this leads. The text goes on to say, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. I won't re-preach last week's sermon, which was centered around this phrase, fear of God, which is, of course, not phobic, that I want to run away, but it is awe and reverence and compelling that I am drawn toward. So the desire to, the desire to not cast off restraint, which is sort of the modern construct of freedom, that there are no restraints, the scripture would say, actually, that's not freedom, That's a weird hedonistic anarchy that doesn't benefit the people around you because at the end of the day, if casting off restraints in order to fulfill my own personal freedoms and desires and wants, uh, this is, by definition, an unloving posture because it is me first. Somebody's going to pay for that posture. This is why it's contrary to the ways of God. This is why we need this thing called prophetic vision. Otherwise, this is sort of where all of this... Um, takes us in, in heads, and the reason why the fear of God, this awe of God, is so important, is because it is only, it is the only long term motivator for living living uh, out the joy and the flourishing that God envisions in this prophetic vision, which we'll define in a second. But it's the only long term motivator. Phobic fear, you know, God is going to get you. That whole vibe, that is not a long term uh, motivating force. For living in the wisdom and the ways of God uh, at all. And scripture reveals this repeatedly because the people of God all throughout the First Testament, the Old Testament, they saw tremendous miracles. And yet, despite that, they saw they continue to chase after other gods. They saw God pronounce tremendous judgments on uh, nations uh, that were doing abhorrent things contrary to the ways of God sacrificing children and terrible things towards women in their worship ceremonies to their pagan gods these other gods and uh, they saw the judgment of those nations and still that wasn't enough so you see having a phobic fear of god is not enough to be a driving force to say i want to live in the awe of god i want to if you have children teach my children to embrace uh this loving and amazing god phobic fear is certainly not enough it's got to be prophetic vision that's got to be the motivating and driving force. This is, of course, why we uh, why we need it. If you consider this idea in the New Testament uh, of uh, the driving force in living and flourishing, in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul calls the law of God a, uh, a tutor, he uses the Greek term paedagogos, which means like a harsh disciplinarian. And the purpose of the law, being the harsh disciplinarian, was not... Uh, so that you just live the Christian life under this harsh disciplinarian of the law, but it was to get that immature child, the pedagogos in the old, or sorry, in the ancient world, the pedagogos. Their job was to be a harsh disciplinarian of the law, so that that child would adopt the family values of character and virtue and be able to take over the family inheritance. So the the actual purpose of the law was to work it was to work its way out of a job so that there was a maturity that took place, so that there was an embracing of the family values to live into the family heritage. So the Apostle Paul uses that language. He's not like the way to please God is just to live under this hammering, crushing law all the time and be in a phobic fear of him. That doesn't actually produce any flourishing. There's got to be an inward transformation of the heart. That's the New Testament. But here we see even that wisdom uh, that Paul's uh, pulling from here in the wisdom literature of the Proverbs, saying that it is actually by the awe of God that we will turn uh, from evil and we will live into that adoption, uh, adoption narrative. So we're not like children. Who are told to make their beds, but they don't want to make their beds, and they go in their room, and they kick, and they scream, and they cry, and they have, and you're just constantly managing this behavior all the time, and they, and they leave Lego on the ground, so, you know, like uh, this small little childlike landmines for you to step on, because there's nothing more painful in the human existence than standing on a piece of Lego, because they don't want to do it, they don't want to obey you. So this isn't the picture of Christian obedience, being like a child that's like, okay, well, I guess I got to... I guess I've got to embrace this thing called prophetic vision. I guess I've got to wonder at God, and so I guess I've got to keep this law. This is not the tone. This is not the intention at all. It's living into it in a beautiful way. This past summer, Susan was in Ireland with her sister. Her sister treated her to this trip, and in Ireland, they drive on the left side of the road, and they rented a rental car, which was a five-speed manual transmission, Because both Susan and her sister can drive a manual transmission, only the gear shift is on the left side, on the left side of the road. Which some of you would call the correct side of the road, but for most of us, we would find that to be the incorrect side of the road. And so, they realized very quickly that this was an absolute struggle. And it got to the point where the two of them together drove the car. But Susan did the shifting from the passenger seat and her sister was just working the clutch from the driver's seat because both of them understood the principle of standard transmission and they were both driving the car. There was an Irish bus driver who looked down at them, saw them driving the car together and was like, what is happening over here? You see, desiring the awe of God and living into the wisdom of his scriptures of the law of God ...can very much feel like driving on the wrong side of the road with the shifter on the wrong side. This is constant struggle against my inclinations, against the iniquities of my heart. The ways in which I may want to handle my sexuality. Because the culture is preaching a particular message on sexuality. Perhaps I want to be congruent with that and that seems incongruent with the law of God. Perhaps it's the way I want to relate to my finances... Perhaps I believe the cultural narrative of finances that all of my finances are mine. I worked hard for them. I earned it. It's mine. That's the cultural narrative. God's narrative is you're a steward of everything. You don't even have the things you have if God, the creator, did not give you the brains in your head, the breath in your lungs, the gifts that you are... You are a steward of everything that you have. Perhaps it is a struggle... To come into congruence with the law of God in the way that we see the poor. In the way that we relate and engage with the poor. Perhaps we would prefer the cultural narrative that there is deserving and undeserving poor. Which is not the way that God sees the poor. Which is we've, These are the principles of wisdom we've been looking at all summer. There are so many ways in which we can, we can feel like it's a struggle. And this is why we need the prophetic vision. Otherwise the law of God is, seems to be this consistent struggle against the iniquity that would say to me perhaps I should go this way the culture seems to be saying these things are fine and in fact will lead me into greater freedom but they're not perhaps it's the cultural narratives around pornography you can get soft porn on Netflix no problem so the culture calls it entertainment do we call it entertainment or do we say well I can't absorb this like entertainment this is sin but the prevailing cultural narrative is this is mainstream and fine Perhaps it's the conversation around substances. Right? Perhaps it's you can you, you can't go five feet without hitting a cannabis store. Right? Do I need the church to write me a position paper on alcohol and cannabis? Or can I take that out of the category which is a very small category of can I do this? into the I think the more important wisdom category of should I do this? Is this beneficial, is this wise? How will this lead me into being a person of flourishing as God would define flourishing? To walk with wisdom towards my brothers and sisters here and in the greater culture. To take all of these things. You see, the the essence of wisdom scripture, which is why on Sunday after Sunday I don't keep giving you specific scripts. And I've said this to you. It's because wisdom literature provokes us to do some deep diagnosis and do our own sort of autopsies on our own souls. The great issue that it is, it is provoking us to see is, what do I love? What are the inclinations of my heart? And is my initial reaction to the law of God coming into my life and saying, there might be, you might need to exercise some restraint here. Is my initial reaction to that say, whoa, no, that can't be good. Because after all, I want it and I'm king. And if the king wants it, it can't be bad. So let's move on now to the, the, the greatest question from why do I need it to what is it? I mean, what am I being asked to live by? The prophetic vision is found, the first and original prophetic vision from which all the prophetic literature flows is found in Genesis 3. God gives the first prophetic vision right after the fall of man into sin. And the, 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 the prophetic vision that God gives is to recover what he did in the first place. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates humanity for all flourishing. And he creates male and female that we would cultivate civilization to his glory. That all of our gifts and faculties, that the innovations of the human mind, that the, cult- the cultivation of civilization, that innovation in every respect would be to the glory of God. That all of the ways in which you've been created and wired, that you would... Live that life in flourishing to him. Sin breaks everything. Genesis 3, sin comes in and causes a dislocation between us and God, us and nature, us and each other, and us within ourselves. And you see that in how Adam and Eve, our first parents, react to their sin. Right? They're hiding from God. They're hiding from each other. They're blaming each other. And they're having shame within themselves. Everything is dislocated. Dislocation from who God is in their relation to Him as Creator and creation. They wanted to remove that distinction. I'm God. Dislocation from each other relationally. Dislocation even within themselves, the sense of shame. Everything's been fig leaves ever since. So, what is the prophetic vision? The prophetic vision in Genesis 3 is God says, From your seed, one is going to come. And you are going to bruise His heel. And he, with his heel, is going to bruise your head. Speaking of Jesus, to the devil, the first prophetic vision is renewal is coming. I created everything in beauty. You broke everything. I'm going to restore everything. I'm coming after you because I'm a God of grace and a God of forgiveness that you can't grasp because what you actually deserve right now is for me to just wipe this thing out and start in another galaxy. But what you're going to receive is scandalous grace. And the way in which this is going to come is a wounded warrior Will come. The devil will bruise his heel. He will bruise the devil's head. This, this poetic imagery of fatality, the wounded warrior, the, that as the nail is driven through Christ's heel on the cross, the prophecy is fulfilled. That as Christ threw the cross and three days later the empty tomb and his resurrection in 33 AD under Pontius Pilate, in human history, when that happened, this is the fulfillment of the prophetic vision that the wounded warrior would come, that he would come and restore all things. And then all of the prophetic literature throughout all of the Old Testament, as you read the minor and the major prophets, minor and major not meaning some are more important than others, but the length of the literary work that they are, are um, given to the people. But as you look at all of the prophetic literature, it's just different ways of calling people back to the original prophetic vision. Which is, will you stop being your own God and will you bend your knee and trust in the saving grace of the God? In the Old Testament, the prophetic vision is pointing forward to Jesus. In the New Testament, the prophetic vision is, let's live in congruence with the fulfillment of all things found in Jesus. You see, the, the, the prophetic vision is contrary to modern visions because the, the modern narrative is... I'm the hero of my own story. The modern narrative is we ought to be the main actors in our own story. But the prophetic vision, that narrative is actually all of humanity and all of existence is God's story. And our lives matter and the vision you have for what you're doing on Monday matters. It all matters, but it only finds its context in the greater story. And if you dislocate yourself from the greater story, you will cast off restraint and you will not lead a life flourishing. You will lead a life by, by the, the, the modern conversation about what human flourishing is, but in an ultimate sense it won't because, like I said, if there is no God and there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've tethered yourself to an idea that time itself is taking away. You don't live by the, the values of your great-great-great-grandparents, so I don't know why you would have the chronicle, chronological snobbery to believe that your great-great-great-great-grandchildren, should you have them, would ever live by your values. This is the modern myth of the West. We're like the adolescence of the world, right? We've been here for 300 years, you know, since, since colonization happened. We, we've been here, Americans have been here for 300 years. We've been here for 150, 200 years. And uh, the modern myth is that the ideals of which we are basing civic life are like these eternal truths. But then you go across the ocean and there's cities built upon cities upon cities because kingdoms come and go. Ideas come and go. Ideologies come and go, values come and go. So, what is this prophetic vision? It is the life changing, life fulfilling conviction that we are not God, that we were made for God, that God is good, and that His gospel uh, reveals through Jesus Christ that human history is actually His story. That all of humanity, all of history is moving towards God's teleological end. Which is the renewal of all things found in Jesus Christ, which is coming with the return of the king. Which we have confidence in, not because it's just a theological idea or a spiritual idea. And there's many world religions and Christianity is just one of many and you can pick your gods. But because we have tethered ourselves to something that God has done in human history. The empty tomb in 33 A.D., hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw the resurrected Jesus, which was why Christianity exploded in Rome overnight, didn't take thousands of years to morph this ancient hippie called Jesus into this divine person, overnight abandoning Platonic philosophies, abandoning their, their intellectual sort of academic ideas around the world, and overnight worshiping Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And because the world was upended at this point, this prophetic vision calls us To trust in this God of saving grace. It's not that our visions don't matter. You have a vision for your life, for your vocation, for your family, for your education. But all of those visions find their context. All of those visions find their meaning. All of those visions are reoriented. All of those visions, you you actually find your healing, if I could use that word. In the context of God's prophetic vision. And if you remove that, all you're left with is you know, be successful tomorrow and live a good life. It's too small. It's too small. It's so tragically small. It's why you don't have to look very far to find people who have everything according to the modern vision. And they're, we are the most medicated people in the world. And I'm not speaking to those of you who have physiological challenges and you're battling your own biology and you, and you need medication to regulate yourself. That, I understand, is a battle even within your own body. I'm not speaking to that. I'm talking about the depression and the anxiety and the chronic dread that your life has no meaning that it is a result of orienting yourself around some mini Messiah smaller than Jesus. Without the prophetic vision, people cast off restraint. We cast off restraint in a thousand ways. Which leads to the last thing, the final thing. How do we get it? We get it by recognizing we are dependent creatures. And we live by narratives. And we're wired for worship. So we we get the prophetic vision by accepting that it is good. By adopting it as important. By integrating it as invigorating. I have to accept that it's good. You look at uh, 29.18, it said, Blessed is the one who keeps the law. The context of this, of course, was the Torah, the 613 laws. But we're, the, the purpose of those laws—the dietary laws, the civic laws, the sexual laws, the ceremonial worship laws—the purpose of the Torah was to separate the people of God from the surrounding culture. So, even though Christ has come and fulfilled the law, and Christ has come and fulfilled the requirements of the not only the Torah, but Christ has fulfilled um, the truths of God's law, the Ten Commandments, which transcend all, all cultures, all times, all truths. God has Christ has fulfilled that law. The premise of the law remains that you and I would live lives that are separate from the culture. I have to, sorry, accept that God is good, that his goal is, 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 is not to restrict my joy, but to actually fulfill my joy by bending my knee to his truth, to his law, to the wisdom of his word. To accept that it's good. I have to adopt it as important to live my life by these principles, to see that, yes, I do want to live this separate life. If you happen to have children, to raise your children in this way. We have to adopt that the wisdom of God is important. That he gives us his wisdom for the purpose of flourishing. And then we invigorate all these things as invigorating. And as we're raising our kids to have this grand vision of God, it's painting the big picture of what it means to flourish in the city. To love people that don't believe a word that I've said this morning. The grand narrative flourishing. The original vision, the prophetic vision that one is coming until so to the degree that I bend my knee to flourish as he would define flourishing. This is the this is the degree to which I am coming into congruence with reality. This wounded warrior of Genesis 3 who has come and saved us from all things, by God's grace may we live into this truth. By God's grace may we live into our new humanity by putting off our old ways, by not living a life without restraint but putting on the right restraints so that we can be people of love and of care and of wisdom. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who keeps the law. Let's pray.